Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I've brought, brought to you for your delectation and delight a roundtable of people who I rate exceptionally highly in the area of demand and buyer-led, uh, buyer-centric selling. So we have Jill Robbins from Business Fierce. We have Tom Williams from Strategic Dynamics. And we have Bob Mester, who wrote Demand Side Selling who all three of them are fantastic in their field. And we're going to have a robust and challenging discussion. And I hope most of you who are listening will be cringing and in your seats, wriggling with discomfort, uh, because this is not going to be a comfortable conversation for, for you to listen to. So ladies first, Jill, would you mind giving us a quick intro to who you are and your background? Absolutely. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having us on. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Jill Robbins with Business Fierce. I have been in the corporate world on the dark side with strategic sourcing and procurement for over 20 years, having managed over $3 billion in spend with people reporting to me on every continent. And I took a leave of absence from the corporate world the second week of June of this year. And believe I have found my calling in working with clients of all sizes who sell into procurement or sell through procurement. So I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly working with the largest companies in the world. And I teach um, my clients how to effectively work with procurement and negotiate so that they are procurement insiders. Excellent. Thank you. Tom. Sure. Good morning, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. My name is Tom Williams. I'm with Strategic Dynamics, and uh, I've been in sales, I guess, since I about, about 10 years old, uh, probably like many of your listeners. Cut lawns, I uh, shoveled snow, I had a lemonade stand, all those types of things. <laughs> Ran sales and marketing for a large medical device firm for years, and then went into operations and actually was a, uh, was a hospital CEO for several years. So I was on the side of having uh, vendors and suppliers come in and sell to me and then started a medical services business where I did the same thing. I sold to people and had people come in and sell to me. So I've been on both sides of the fence when you talk about selling to the C-suite. I sold that company and then uh, later started Strategic Dynamics as a consulting company to help uh, small uh, device companies help them uh, sell better into, uh, into large sales organizations by understanding and being more buyer-centric. Excellent. And Bob? Well, again, thank you for having us on. I'd like, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by the two of you, three of you, to be honest, but it's one of those things where I'm, I'm happy to be at the table. I'm, a, I'm a, a lifelong innovator. I've been breaking things for 50 years. I've been fixing things for 45, <laughs> but I've been building things for just about uh, 30 years. I've done about 3,500 different products and services in a wide range of applications from the guidance system for the Patriot Missile to Pokemon Mac and Cheese to uh, Basecamp and just about everything in between. And I've had to learn to sell the hard way, which is basically I built, I built shit and just basically had to figure out how to sell it. And then over time, I've, I've learned, I'll say through, through the baseball bat and the two by four, basically different ways in which to do it. And recently wrote a book called Demand Side Sales, which is based on one of my innovation frameworks called Jobs to be Done. Excellent. And if you haven't got it, get it. Tom, remind me of the, uh, the titles of your books, because both of those are fabulous. Well, thank you, Marcus. The first one is called The Seller's Challenge, and the second one is called Buyer-Centered Selling. Excellent. So there's three great book recommendations. Still, when's yours out? 
Well, I've written a children's book and <laughs> I'm working on an ebook right now. Excellent. Okay. So we need to get really smart. The challenge, I think, and this is the premise, I fundamentally believe that success in the future will be determined by our ability to collaborate. And the premise that I'm coming at this roundtable at is that too often sales and procurement are set up as in an adversarial framework. In fact, sales and the buyer, whether they're procurement, whether they're a CEO or a CFO or whoever, Salespeople have a tendency to try and do stuff uh, to the buyer. And I fundamentally believe that's the quickest way to only living off crumbs and being depressed at missing your quote. Bob, let's start with you. What needs to change in terms of the psychology of sales organizations and vendors generally? I think it's a two-sided problem, right? There's a selling problem and there's a buying problem. And I think the way that that buying has been set up uh, from a procurement perspective is all about scale. And it's trying to strip out what I would call the emotional and social aspects to make it, quote, fair. But the reality is, is that the problems they're trying to solve are very emotional and the things that they have. And to be honest, most of the time, people actually don't know why they're buying what they're buying. They just know they're supposed to buy something. And so part of it is, is this notion of being able to go deeper into what I say is the consumer side of it to understand, like, why does the surgeon need this new device? Why do we need this new CRM? And most of the time, procurement has been kind of almost relegated to the, to the, order, the order giver. And again, we've stripped out kind of that interaction between the people who have the real problems and the sellers who basically can't get to the way in which to actually help people make progress. So Jill, let's bring you in on this then, because you've spent your entire career on that side of things. Your your response to Bob? Yeah, you know, I, I agree. And I think that oftentimes sellers, they underestimate the knowledge and the wherewithal of procurement and strategic sourcing. Because really, they sit in a unique seat in many cases, especially on the indirect side of the business, they can see across the value chain. So, you know, coming in and just selling to a surgeon, you know, selling a CRM system, whatever they are selling, stop selling the solution and start looking at how you can solve problems for your customer and really get to know their business. And you'll take your sales to a whole nother level. Um, and you will truly become that trusted advisor with your customer or potential customer. A fabulous metaphor that actually was brought about because of my conversations with you and Tom is if you imagine you're flying a bomber and there's a night bombing raid and every time a bomb drops, you hear a little thud and there's a flash of light. All of those are the centers of dissatisfaction throughout the business. And in my earlier conversation with Bob, he was talking about the way uh, buyers go through this journey. So there are problems and they start looking passively, then they start looking actively, then they disqualify out and they make their decision on the basis of what they disqualify. Then they start to use the product and then they start to really experience it um, and either buy into it or ditch it. And so you're on your snipe bombing raid and procurement gets to see all of those bombs dropping. But um, the uh, lines of business are lobbing these problems over the wall at procurement. So procurement actually sees the whole picture, as do your partners as well. If you've got really good strategic partners, 
they should be seeing them as well. And the problem that I see happen far too often is that culturally we've been taught as sellers, and I've been guilty of this for years, is that procurement's the enemy. They're not your partner. But a pal of mine over in Australia, he has a business that really focuses on being the heavy artillery. So two years before you intend to sell uh, to a customer, they're creating conversations with procurement, with senior executives, with key stakeholders. And so by the time you're ready to sell to them, there's already a dialogue going on. You understand their real problems. And this is where I want to bring Tom in, because clearly you've been on both sides of the fence. So what was it like building a buying organization, having come from sales, knowing where where sales is psychologically? Well, you know, it's it's a conundrum, I think. Marcus, because, you know, I think you, you have to look at it a couple different perspectives. And I, I agree with Bob and I agree with, with Jill, but I'm going to try to give you a little different perspective here. One, one is, is that when you think about most sales VPs, you know, that are running a large sales organization today, most of them are telling their, their team, avoid procurement at all costs. Take the order if you can possibly get it from one of the, uh, one of the user's that you're talking to, one of the various stakeholders. So it could be that surgeon, you know, that you are, uh, you're talking to. In fact, you know, I can go back maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago. The mantra was, if you were in surgical sales, is the surgeon, the cutter is king, meaning the surgeon is the one that does the cutting. He's king, sell to him and take the order from procurement, right? Let procurement process the paperwork. So I agree with Joe that where where the market is going is procurement is becoming, they're getting a seat at the C-suite table. They're becoming much more important to the C-suite in terms of cost savings, collaboration, driving strategy, you know, and you can go on and on with all the advantages that procurement is now starting to bring to the table. The issue with most sales organizations is, is trying to understand what's the maturity level of that procurement function that they're dealing with. Because in some organizations like Jill came from, I can see where they could be highly, highly collaborative and you would want to build a strong relationship. But many of the sales clients that I deal with, they don't have that kind of collaborative arrangement. In other words, procurement doesn't play fair. Everything is sent out by RFP, even if even if they don't need to, they send it out. You could be a vendor who's doing a great job and they send it out to RFP and it's what we call a forced RFP. Let's see if we can scare the vendor, the existing supplier, into dropping their price or avoiding giving us a price increase. I give you another example. I've got a, a large client that, that, that uh, makes a, a small component that goes inside of another component. They work on a 22% gross margin. The product that that goes into has got a 70% gross margin. And because they're viewed as a commodity, they're beaten down on price, and, they, and if they don't have cost reduction from that 22%, you know, down to a few, few percent less, they lose the business. So it's hard to go to a client like that and say, well, play fair with procurement. Think of them from a strategic sense because they just don't believe it because they don't, they don't see it in a day-to-day basis. So I think you know, this is going to take some time to shift salespeople into a different modality and way of dealing with procurement. It's going to have to come over time. It's going to have to be built on trust with procurement. 22% is barely break even when you net that down. Absolutely. I don't know why they don't just compete with the, the parent company 
that they're selling to. And uh, it, it, but you're right; it's, it's a very, very low gross margin. And I'm not saying they don't have other products that have higher gross margin, but they have plants around the world. They need to keep them operating. And so what they're doing is they're they're trying to offset some of their uh, their expenses, their operating expenses. So. Let me ask this question then. I'm going to come back to you, Jill. If you are dealing with a a procurement team that does have that mentality of driving forced uh, RFPs, and I'll give you a good example of this. One of my old school friends came to me because they were invited into a bid. And I said, go go back and ask how many uh, they've sent the RFP out to. And it was 58. And going out there and they're fishing around for pricing with these false RFPs. And, um, that, you know, there's no way that, I mean, at least 57 of them would not win it, first of all. And mostly those kind of RFPs are ones where there is no decision to be had at the end, apart from to stick with the status quo, to see whether or not they can go back and beat up column A. So if you are selling to a procurement department that has that kind of culture and they're not playing fair, what advice would you give to the managers of the vendor in order to help their salespeople create a more even playing field and shift them away from this confrontational mentality. You know, and I've got a couple of clients now that are dealing with this and first ask why. So, you know, go back to Lean Six Sigma, ask why five times and they will squirm because they can't answer usually the first or second why. And you really start to get under their skin and understand what metrics are you, you know, trying to prove here because they may have the wrong internal scorecard, right? You've got to look at total cost of ownership. No, I can tell you being in procurement strategic sourcing for 20 years, they will not review half of those RFP responses, not even a chance. They may look at the pricing, but the devil's in the details. And, you know, what I coach my clients is be creative. Yes, respond to the RFP, but don't look like everyone else. Submit a video, you know, get creative, have some senior people in your organization articulate why you're different. What is that total value proposition that you're bringing to the table that your competition is not? Because everyone else is just vanilla submitting, you know, these responses. So I think it's, there's an opportunity to stand out and be different. Now, you know, if it's just a commodity, again, you can still be creative in looking at ways to improve processes as you've learned from other clients. So, you know, I think don't get discouraged by the behaviors and procurement. Seek first to understand and be collaborative with them. And it may take a while but it's worth the investment. Excellent. Bob, your thoughts? At 18, my uh, I actually had an internship with Dr. Deming, who is the father of Lean. Right? Oh, wow. So I actually yeah. went to Japan. I worked in Japan. Uh, I learned the five whys, all, all of that stuff. And so the, the whole aspect here is like, nobody is randomly buying. There's just nothing random about it. And so part of it is trying to understand the causality behind it. And the five whys is the only way to get there. Why now? 
right? And and again, this is when 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 you have a fairly immature uh, uh, buying organization, they're just they're just there to procure it, but they actually don't know the underlying purpose of it. And so ultimately you need to find the person, like nobody wants to change. There, there's nothing in the organization that says we have to change, but there's certain forces. So I have a framework called the forces of progress where we talk about what's the push of the situation? What's the pull that they have to what's the new outcomes that they actually want? What are the, what are the anxieties that they have? And what are the habits that they have to give up in order to buy this new thing? And so to me, it's, it's actually, you know, Jill, you said it great. The devil's in the details. It's about the dominoes that have to fall for them to actually make this work. And what happens is most of the time they just think is I'll put an RFP, you know, we'll put some documents together. We'll actually learn a lot from the RFP. We'll pull it together and we'll just buy something. But it's, it's, it's not about buying. It's about actually using and consuming whatever you're buying. And so that's the other half of this thing where you need to look at, like, like Jill said, the total ownership. And so part of it is being able to see both these forces and the timeline by which people are actually kind of at the phases of, those time, of the timeline. Tom has something too, but yeah, I, I agree completely, Bob. And I think what we're seeing as a result of COVID and I think even leading up to this is procurement organizations, sellers looking differently at you know the solution and how they can you know compete effectively and long term and it's thinking and acting like an owner and that sounds cliche but having been in the corporate world and my husband and I have been entrepreneurs as well you have to look at margin you have to look at efficiency you have to look at total cost of ownership because if something doesn't make sense now it's only going to bleed <laughs> on the balance sheet longer term and when you can articulate your solution, your product in a way that will make a long-term impact, that's the game changer. And procurement is coming around and they're able to connect a lot of those fragmented pieces, but they're afraid to get their neck chopped and speak up. Yeah. Um, so I think the more suppliers and vendors can tease that out because procurement is a wealth of knowledge. Once you build that trust, once you cultivate that open and transparent relationship, you can win all day long because procurement knows a lot more than many other functions do. Excellent. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, there's a couple of points I would make. First off is I think salespeople need to change their mindset. If you think yeah. of procurement as the enemy, then they're gonna, it's going to come, come through resoundingly when you're dealing with procurement. They're going to sense the antagonism that you have. So I think you have to think differently in a positive way. I think you have to really understand procurement. And that means that somebody within your organization has got to teach you about the role and function of procurement, the metrics that are important to them, how to deal with them, how to actually call on them in an efficient and effective way, how to build those relationships. And I think the other thing is, is that you have to remember, where does procurement you know, report to and who else is important and looking at? the outcomes that the, the, the client wants to achieve. Because at the end of the day, there's three things that clients want. Clients ask three questions all the time. Why change? Why change now? And who's going to do it best? And that's really what they're looking for. And then that leads them into the best outcome. So if you think about who, you know, when you're going to impact positive financial metrics, the CFO always is, is interested in that. So if you can get to the CFO, you know, and talk to them, Oftentimes, they'll see a total cost of ownership that's a, a better value 
than a simple unit price that someone at a lower level in a procurement function or at a more immature procurement uh, function will not see. So there's a lot of different ways to get around it. And lastly, if you're talking to the end user who's really going to achieve that benefit, you can talk to them and say, look, I, you know, you'll really see the value in our product or service, but we're going to have to go through and talk to procurement. Help me understand how to best, best position myself with them or help you position yourself with them to get the end result that you both want. So it doesn't become just a price discussion. Interestingly enough, one of the things that I see so many sales organizations forget is that they don't really understand that a CFO doesn't want a point solution. They want to know that your solution can affect multiple departments and that you can help them solve multiple problems across multiple departments and deliver long-term value. So you turning up with your shiny new widget that might help the facilities function is of reduced, certainly significantly reduced value. One of the questions Patty Hatter asked me this, she threw me a little bit when I put forward an idea to her, but it's since then charged a whole load of thinking, which is, well, what do you replace? Um, and if you can go in and you can help so I'm working with a cybersecurity company that provides password-free uh, solutions. Now, that can replace probably three to six different existing incumbent technologies. Now, from a procurement standpoint, that's a huge win because you don't have to pay six licenses and six maintenance, and you don't have to manage six different platforms. And net result of that is, across the entire business, you can deliver increased efficiency, higher productivity. You can make the user experience better. But if we go in and we try and talk about password-free to the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer, or IT, uh, it's just a commodity. There's no real lasting value there. And so coming back to Tom's uh, critical questions, why change, why now, and who can do it best? If you are not prepared to answer those questions, then frankly, you don't deserve a seat at the table. So Bob, your thoughts? Yeah, but I, I, I actually disagree with that because I think part of this is the fact is, is from, a, from a sales perspective, the buyer has to actually unpack those words. What does it mean to be better? Like what, when you start to unpack price, it's never about necessarily price. It might be unit price. It might be cost savings. It might be productivity. There's a whole bunch. There's so many other metrics wrapped around it that, that most people aren't clear about it. And so it's this notion of being able to unpack the language that the buyer has. And, and, and it's to Jill's point of like, if you ask why three times, right, and, and they can't give you the answer, they actually don't know the problem. And so to me, what I try to do is help people find the person who's got the social capital on the line, who is actually pushing to actually make this change and who will, who will from, from a social perspective or a political perspective inside, like, I'm willing to say we need to get this because that's not working. And, and my belief is by finding that energy of where, where, who's willing to put those things on the line to make the change to Tom's point of like, nobody's, no, nobody wants to change. And so if they're going to do it, who's the leader behind it? And, and they'll have the whys. But if they can't get to the five whys down to the fifth why, they actually don't know. And so it's hard to change sales when, when, when all 
it's kind of like in the in the in the in the HR business. Well, when we when we try to actually hire somebody new to fit into a position, we ask about what college did they go to, how many years experience do they have, what do they run? Like they don't they don't actually tell you what the context is that 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 you're going to walk yourself into and the progress that they expect from you. They literally hire you based on these higher level metrics that are usually irrelevant. So that HR bottomless pit that you just articulated. Yeah on you know what qualifies good in terms yes. of a hire it's the so what so what you have a right. hard Harvard degree so what so it's the five whys but it's the so what after that and i that's think right. you know what tom shared who can do it best that's the so what now who can do it best in the eyes of the buyer and who can do it best in the eyes of the seller and the two have to come together and have skin in the game and you know, have those shared KPIs so that they're both held accountable because one can't be successful without the other. And that's I think right. that's really the fatal flaw in the buying and selling relationship oftentimes is, well, I sell this, I've checked the box, I've met my quarterly target, adios, the agreement signed. Well, you know, you're not going to have a long-term relationship um, with that customer if, if that's your mindset. So I was working with a telecommunications company, right? And we were interviewing people who basically recently fired them, right? So why, why did people leave them, right? And what you end up doing is, is I, I'm a big proponent of understanding and doing postmortems of both successful sales and unsuccessful sales or things we lose, right? And out of it, we learn all these things. And so one of the things that came up was this person said, well, you know, I, I just trusted them. I'm like, whoa, stop. Yeah. <laughs> so wait a second. You know this person for three weeks, right? You know your past vendor for 20 years. And you basically said you trusted them. Like, what in the world did they do? And they're like, well, the first thing is they came in and they didn't actually, they wanted to learn about my business. They didn't actually just tell me who they work for and give me a menu. Okay, check. It says the other thing is that what they did is they 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 came back with three options. So they wanted me to actually they taught me things about these th when they did gave me the three options. I said, well, okay, but that didn't, did that cost her? They're like, no. And you start talking more, and they're like, I think the thing is is when they told me no, I trusted them the most. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, when I actually pushed too hard and I went over the line, and they said, you know what, that's great. I can't do that. You need to go find somebody else. I went, whoa, okay, I know where no, the I line is, and then you stop. And it's this whole notion of we 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 forget the fact is is that people are trying for us to build trust we actually need to be able to know where the lines are, and so this whole thing is is trying to get people to yes versus trying to get people to no actually helps people build trust. And so again, like anything else, trust is actually an effect. It's not a cause. It's an effect. And if it's an effect, what are the things that you do to cause trust? And the thing is, is this is not stuff you you talk about in the sales rumor, it's in theory. This is literally go out and talk to your customers because when trust is built, it literally comes organically and it's not rational. It's a bunch of things or a set of things that you need to actually understand in great detail. Sorry. Excellent. Tom, let's bring you in on this. Pardon? Um, I'd like your thoughts on what's just being said. Well, I, I agree. I agree with, with, Mark, with, uh, with Bob uh, wholeheartedly. I think, you know, Good salespeople, you know, ask better questions. I think the good salespeople collaborate and co-create solutions with their with their clients. Uh, they're not afraid to push back, but they push back in a positive in a positive way that is not uh, it does not go and impart impair the relationship. But they push back in a positive way, you know, by telling the client, 
maybe there's another way of looking at this and getting them to think differently. And, you know, all of those things created, you know, a different level of trust and build a relationship. And that's ultimately what you're trying to do. You know, I ask salespeople all the time, when you make a sales call, are you memorable or are you forgettable? <laughs> you know, and it's really, it, it, it gives people pause, Marcus, because they want, they stop and they think, do you sound like everybody else? Or are you really just really trying to uncover and unpack what's the, what's the problem that the customer is trying to solve? You know, and are you asking the five whys? Are you using a fishbone diagram? Whatever you want to do to get to the root cause so that you really understand what the, what the real problem is and then help them think through a solution or a variety of solutions that will meet their need. Because it might be a short-term solution that's, that's good today because they can't afford or can't put into place a longer-term solution. But then you put a plan in place and say, here's good, better, and best. You know, and here's how we can get there. Really interesting. I interviewed a, a lady called Caroline Pino, and she has a fabulous story. She was interviewed at Splunk <laughs> in the summer last year. She started there in January, and whilst on her initial training, she went to the hospital, she was feeling a bit crook, and uh, she was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Now, all the management was saying, yeah, take as much time as you need, you'll have a job when you're ready, come back. But Caroline's a bit feisty and a hell of a fighter. Anyway, I interviewed her in October, and her response uh, to you're 300% of quota at the moment with only two hours a day to do it. You're taking your foot off the gas? No, there's two months left. Now, what was really interesting about Caroline and the, the rest of you who are listening, if you're in enterprise sales, pay heed. She cares about the people who don't have a financial vested interest. So she actually has massively high EQ. She cares about them as human beings, and she gets enormous discretionary effort out of the people in operations, in engineering, in marketing, in product management, in management. And she coordinates, she orchestrates and uh, choreographs the entire sales conversation directly with partners, with the customer at every level. And she knows how to say no. She's really strong at saying no gracefully. And the net result of that is she only worked on four accounts this year. Didn't take the full gamut of accounts. She prioritized. And her opening gambit with each of them is, look, you guys use our product. Now I want to make sure that you are getting the best out of it. I'm here to help. And this, I think, is a shift that very few organizations have really gotten to grips with which is you need to maximize utilization. And that way you don't end up as shelfware. And people don't spend money and then regret it and then just march time waiting to fire you and get you off their roster. So again, keep an ear out for that interview. It's just being approved by marketing at the moment. But my question is this, how do you create a sales culture that thinks like Caroline, acts like Caroline, and rewards and recognizes the people who don't necessarily have a direct vested interest in the sale in order to drive that discretionary effort. So you deliver the best possible outcome for the customer. Well, I think you have to, you, you have to start by, by really being buyer or customer centric. And by that, I mean is that um, 
you've got to center the organization around understand better understanding the customer, what the outcomes are that you're trying to deliver, and not just give lip service to the fact that we're going to be customer centric, but then not act that way. You know, somebody's actually got to pick up the phone. You've got to have a response time that makes sense. And you probably are going to have to change the compensation system uh, of the way that your salespeople are, are paid. Because, uh, and, and no one wants to hear that, you know, in a traditional sales organization. But, you know, the, the incentives are, are not always aligned in a proper way to be buyer-centric. Bob, you smiled at that. Yeah. So um, you volunteered. No, I think... I think the, the the reality is there's I I actually see more friction between uh, marketing, sales, and customer success than I do in efforts to actually try to help customers make progress. Absolutely. And so, the first thing that that like so the things we've been doing lately is with with different companies is connecting and making all three of those organizations actually connect together and be responsible to, to the ultimate of outcomes because it's not just about the selling of it, but it's the using of it. And so it's the combination of basically how do we, and what I've tried to convince people is like, at some point, less leads that convert better are way better than so many leads that you waste your salespeople's yeah, yeah. time with. And so it's this notion of like, when you break marketing separately, it becomes their own funnel and it's all about just getting leads and then sales can't close. And it's like, no, they're not ready. They're not there. And so part of this is to realize, like, how do you build alignment inside the organization? Well, it, the alignment comes not from, from trying to focus on making it efficient. It's about making it effective by focusing on the progress that the customer or the consumer is trying to make. And Hallelujah. that's the common language that they all have. And what you start to realize is they actually all have different definitions of what better means or different definitions of what easy means. And so you start to realize, unless you're all aligned around what the customer says and means, you're, 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 you're going to actually have more friction internally because I think of most marketers or, or I'll say the, the, the entry-level marketers are salespeople who can't close because they just want to add one feature if we just have that one feature, we can close more. And like, they don't understand how complicated it is to actually be a salesperson and understand the breadth of things you have to actually understand and know, both, both from the, the buying side and from your supply side to actually make stuff happen. I have an apocryphal story, but uh, Tom, you look like you have an itch that needs to be scratched. Oh, no, and it's not an, not an itch. It's, it's just a plan off of what I think what, uh, what Bob was saying. If you think about the average organization, you know, they don't, they look at, at driving revenue. They don't look at, does the customer actually get the results from what that right. revenue is? They don't think about renewal, you know, and, uh, at all. And they don't really look at customer churn until it becomes a problem. And so if you align sales, marketing, customer service, you know, engineering, everybody together, around common metrics, you know, that we want. We don't want to just sell to a customer. We actually want to get a repeat business. And when it comes time for renewal, we want them to, us to be the only choice because we don't want to have customer churn, you know. And so it's, it's, it's aligning all of those incentives along the way in a positive, proactive, product, positive, proactive way so that all the incentives are aligned and the, and the vocabulary is aligned, you know, because so often, the metrics for sales is one thing. The metrics for customer service is something else. Something else, exactly. The service department is something else. And the salespeople for somebody, some other way. And so sales sells the product. Service comes in and sells. Now I'll give you a maintenance or 
a maintenance contract with it, and that's going to cost more money. And the customer looks and says, "Why didn't really? Why didn't the salesperson tell me this up front?" Procurement gets irritated about it, and then you, we start playing all these different games. And what ends up happening is customer churn. You have to eliminate all that. So one of the things that I that, so when I work with software companies, one thing that I always bring up is like, I need to know your zombie revenue number, right? <laughs> like what? Like how many people have paid you and aren't using it? And they're like, ah, the, the funniest part is you get different answers. Like, I don't know, but I can't tell you because if I know, then I got to tell the board. I'm like, okay, like if you can't do that, then I can't work with you, <laughs> right. right? At the same time, the fact is, is, is trying to basically understand what that number is and, and understand how you actually judge progress for them is just because they logged in doesn't mean they used it, right? And so part of this is the deep understanding of what are the real numbers to say, like how many people are paying you and actually aren't getting value from you because they're just one credit card expiration away from literally going somewhere else. Exactly. Absolutely. So Jill, can I bring you in on this? Because I'd be curious about your experience of an organization that has that mentality and what it feels like to be on the buying side when you have a sales organization that operates with that mentality. Yeah, so, you know, this is the buyer beware. I'd say procurement 101, caveat emptor. If it sounds too good to be true, it is true. And you will lose the the long game. And, you know, what I coach my clients, stop selling at any cost because the cost is huge. When you discount, when you hide things, people talk. And when, you know, you're discounting 50%, 60%, the next time, you know, they're at a procurement round table, you're going to have to discount 70% to get that next deal. Stop doing that and focus on the success as, you know, Tom and Bob have articulated that customer success is key. Those results are key. Focus on the outcomes and stop being short-sighted about your sales number. You will increase your margin exponentially when you focus on those the right metrics. So this then raises the million-dollar question I suspect will make me deeply unpopular, but I already have a friend, so I don't need another. <laughs> My question is this. Should every part of the business report to customer success? Tom? Good question. I hadn't thought about it that in that way. I'm trying to think of what the downside of that would be, and I don't see, I don't immediately see a downside to it when you think about it. When I think about engineering, manufacturing, operations, service, I don't really see a downside to doing that. So the key question then is why is customer success? Why does the head of customer success not always have a place on the board? I think, Bob. Yeah, so I, I I actually disagree with Tom. I'm not sure I would actually have customer success have you know everybody report into it. It's kind of like having everybody report into quality, right? At some point in time, quality has to actually hide the uh, identify the problems, but manufacturing or engineering has to actually solve the problems. And so part of this is that I think it's 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 the general management has to actually value customer success more than just sales and actually then hold people accountable to when things aren't working to know how to do the root cause analysis was, was this a client we shouldn't have gotten? Is this a client that we sold the wrong thing? Is this the fact that our product doesn't do what we think is going to do? Is this an onboarding thing? Like the notion of being able to understand why it's not working is how we get better. 
So I think that they should be more like uh, the organization of quality or, or in some cases like, and not finance, but accounting to be able to provide basically feedback to the right areas so we can actually prevent the problems and not sell to the wrong people or basically sell people a bag of goods. Like, I think that's the, that's the aspect where I, but I still think it's a general management problem, not, not trying to give all the power, if you will, to customer success. I understand exactly where, uh, where Bob's coming from, from a quality point of view, but I think you could say that for just about every department. Right. You well, know, you know, so I think whether you, whether you call it customer success or whether you you say to the general manager or president of the division, yeah. whoever it happens to be, yeah. you know, I want you focused like a laser beam on customer success, and all these independent departments that are going to operate have all got to be first and foremost customer success oriented, right. you know, uh, and maybe that's a better way of, of bridging what I said and Bob said together and removing yeah. the friction between the comp- between the departments. The bigger issue is that there are trade-offs that we make in every single decision, and we need to make those more explicit. And so what happens when it's too good to be true, we all know that it's not true. And so how do we actually uncover these things and be able to understand, like, if I'm going to have you laser focused on this, what are you not going to be doing? Right. And being able to actually see the business from a trade-off perspective, as opposed to we just have these priorities and not understand what we're not doing. And so part of this is being explicit about what a good friend of mine that I work with says, you know, you're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass whole, yeah. <laughs> right? And so my thing is, is it's one of those things where we'd rather actually start to think about like, what are the five things that we have to nail and what are the 10 things that don't really matter, right? And so to me, it's this notion of where are the trade-offs both at, a, at, at an engineering level, but also at a customer level and from their perspective, look, Southwest sucks at snacks, but nobody's not flying Southwest because of their snacks. They literally are on time, like all the other aspects of it. So that's the aspect of trying to understand like what is important and knowing what's important and knowing when you need, like not everything is a problem either. And so being able to set that priority from the customer's perspective is very important. So Jill, let's bring you in. Yeah, you know, I I think this is a very important conversation and customer success has to have balance because I've seen in my experience, customer success, only focusing on the shiny object and the glowing remarks. And that's not where you learn. And it cannot be only about top-line sales. Top-line sales at what blank cost? (laughs) So it, like Bob just said, you know, if it's too good to be true, it is true, right? If you're eroding your margins, you're not going to be in business. I interviewed a fabulous guy uh, at Microsoft called Ayman Hussain, mm-hmm. and he's really inspired my thinking with the vendors that I'm working with as a CRO. And one of the things, one of the themes is how you compensate and what you compensate for and at what level. So with their partner program, because he's in their Microsoft's customer success team, With their uh, partners, they get paid a little bit for bringing a deal in over the line. Mm -hmm. They get paid a lot when the customer is utilizing the product fully. They get paid a lot for an upsell, and they get paid a lot for a renewal. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis, I think, needs to shift away from new business, and people need to prospect for a lifetime customer. And Chris Dannem, who was Zig Ziglar's bag carrier for 30 years, 
he taught me that. You know, when he's prospecting, he's prospecting for a customer five years down the road. And I think we need to shift the mentality because most of these problems are symptoms of stuff that you haven't done upstream. So the reason why I think so many salespeople are transactional is because their pipeline is weak and they need every deal. And so that changes their behavior. And to pick up on something you said earlier, Jill, that um, you you get reflected back what you project out. And so the net result is that if you have salespeople with commission breath and they're self-serving and they're worried about hitting their quota, you need to fix that problem way before. If you've got a chief sales officer or a CEO saying, what can we do to get sales in this quarter? They're asking the wrong question. What they should be asking is, what should we have done 16, 90, 120 days back? And they should see that, but they're not looking at the right metrics. They're not looking at the stuff that actually matters because they're being reactive. And from where they've come from, and I think this is the culture question, because so many leaders in sales have come from direct sales. In tech, they've come from selling perpetual licenses instead of SaaS. And they haven't really made that transition uh, to understanding that you are one credit card click away from losing that customer. And all they have to do is terminate. And so I think this is why I asked the question, and I I get where Bob's coming from around uh, reporting to customer success. But building on Tom's point, we really need to make sure that the whole organization from the leaders all the way down to the janitor and everyone in between is aligned on delighting the customer. Unhappy customers are always looking for an alternative. Satisfied customers are absolutely your competitor's best prospects because they know that there's better out there. Delighted customers, even if someone comes with a marginal gain, are more likely to say, Tom, this bunch have just come to me with this. Can you help me fix that problem? And then you can develop your product. And they don't leave. And so I think the, the key metric or a key metric is customer delight. It's de- the delivery of incontrovertible value. Tom. Yeah, and if you think about where that, where that customer centricity really uh, emanates in most organizations, it's with their key account, large account management, strategic account management function, whatever you want to, whatever title you want to give it to. Because that's the one individual who really is interested in taking care of the customer and making sure that they're getting the right utilization, they're getting the products on time, they're getting the results and the outcomes that they want. You know, and they're making sure that their their product is impacting everyone in a positive way. And so if you do, you know, loyalty surveys and things, and if you align your team with the customer's teams, in other words, think about the account manager as being the quarterback, but having other people include, it could be your CEO calling on their CEO. It could be certain VPs calling on certain VPs, managers calling managers, you across departments. What you uncover is all kinds of problems. You can have a great product, but you can uncover that that the invoices that you're sending are are on are not on time, or that someone is is hassling them about payment, you know, when they shouldn't be. It could be that there's not a report that they want that's not being emanated. But what you do is when you have a true account management plan that's centered around customer delight, it eliminates all that friction. And it identifies that, number one, the first thing it does is identifies it by functional area and department very quickly. 
The second thing it does is it builds trust within the organization. And the third thing is it drives innovation because what you always do is uncover all kinds of opportunities to get better. Well, I have the double-edged sword on delight because I think the notion <coughs> is you have to be careful just because it's cool doesn't mean it's it's delighting. You have to actually know what they value and they have to value it at a certain level. So the fact is, is the, the other part is whatever you delight today will become performance tomorrow, will become basic next year. And so you have to realize that that delighting is actually adding to the, adding to the, the, the I'll say the, the, the build of what the product has to do or the service has to do. And so to be honest, you have to be very choiceful about what you're delighting them on and what, what are the things that are going to move the needle and what do they value? Just because you do it doesn't mean they value it. And so that's the other part is to me, it gets back to measures and understanding how to measure. Like we usually measure what's easy to measure, but not meaningful to measure. <laughs> How do we get to the most meaningful measures that actually matter? Because we end up trying, like my 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 weights, my heart rate, my uh, temperature, like they don't actually measure really anything about my health, but that's what the doctor takes every time and then tells me how I sit to average. But that doesn't help me. And so part of this is to understand what are the right metrics that you need and spend time to figure out what they are. Because when you move those, they actually, like if I limit my calories, I talk about my steps, I talk about like, you know, at some point, how many hours of sleep I get. Those are the things that will actually move the needle, not my heart rate and my blood pressure and my weight. This is really interesting. And I was taught by my mentor, uh, Brian Sullivan, precisely to do that. And right at the outset of a sale, you need to establish as part of the, uh, the relationship ongoing, you need to establish very clearly what the critical success factors are from the customer's perspective. And you need to uh, be vulnerable enough uh, to have a regular cadence of accountability conversations where they hold you to account and they rate your performance against those critical satisfaction factors. Um, and they will change. And uh, to build on Tom's point, that drives customer satisfaction, but it also drives innovation. Because every quarter you should be meeting with them to find out what's working, what's not. What do we do more of? What do we do less of? What do we need to do better and differently? How are the KPIs shifting? But to do that, you have to actually give a damn. And again, so many salespeople, in my experience, have come from that drive-by shooting culture where you turn up only for renewal conversations. I've been speaking to one organization which historically has had that. And the net result of that is most of their accounts are at risk because yeah. the customer is thinking, you don't give a damn. The only time we ever see you is when you're trying to dip your hand in my pocket. So, Jill, we've got to wrap up now, sadly, but your concluding thoughts on this. Again, I think delighting the customer feels good and sounds good and the devil's in the details. You yeah. have to have the right metrics. And, you know, I like the critical success factors, the accountability conversations, because I have seen in too many instances where the business is bought. So you make the customer feel good because you're rebating, because you're giving them kickers, because, you know, you're doing all of the touchy feely, you're, you know, whining and dining them. And I know that probably really sounds superficial, but you delight a lot of customers in some of these industries because that's the way that it's been done. The margins are there. 
but you're really not moving the needle in terms of value and changing the outcome of their business. And again, you know, you've got to focus on what matters um, and have some of those ugly conversations and they need to be transparent. Again, if you want to succeed in the future, because I think margins are going to be of conversation more and more. And what are you doing for your customers? How are you improving their business? How are you improving their life? How are you making you know, their business more profitable, more productive, more streamlined, more automated? Whatever it is that you're providing has got to make a positive impact. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that that approach does is it allows you to help them stay ahead of their problems. I think you have to partner with your customer. And that that's certainly one of the critical philosophies that I'm trying to bring to all of my clients, that we partner with our customers. We don't sell to them. We are working together so that we help each other get better. Tom, your parting thoughts? Uh, I, I agree. I think it's all about creating partnerships, you know, in, in, in relationships. And, uh, you know, I'm a big, that's why I'm a big fan of, of taking what we do with large account management and translating that into, into day-to-day sales. You've got to help buyers co-create solutions that are meaningful for them and then deliver and deliver the results and the outcomes that they desire. And I wholeheartedly agree with what Bob said, that yardstick changes on a daily basis or a yearly basis, and you've got to change with it. But if you create a performance scorecard, if you actually sit down, have those types of discussions with your clients, they'll tell you what's meaningful and what's important to them. Uh, and it's, then, it's, then it's very easy to, to articulate and go back and, uh, and execute that if you've got the product or service and the ability to do so. And to build on something you said earlier, one of the other pe- uh, departments that must speak to customers is marketing. They almost never do. I've yet to, I, I've come across two marketers in the last 12 months who actually speak to customers. What on God's earth is that all about? I mean, it, marketing's function um, is to put profit on the bottom line. Um, and if you're not speaking to customers, how will you possibly know? It just strikes me as crazy. So, I, you know, to build on Bob's uh, earlier point, people have sacrificed effectiveness for efficiency. Yep. And it, it frustrates me to death that there are so many organizations out there blowing enormous amounts of money on very clever technology and using them atrociously. They dehumanize the whole process and they distance themselves from the customer. They're just an interruption. Bob, your final thoughts. Yep. My thing is, is, is understanding what matters requires you to understand their context. And when their context change, what matters change. Like well, we could talk about safety in airplanes, but safety in airplanes in the last nine months has changed from don't crash to don't infect me. <laughs> yeah. Two different definitions, right? And doing what what customers expect, right, is is not delight. That's satisfaction. Delight. When you think about how to cause delight, the reality is is you have to actually identify a struggling moment that they have that they don't expect you to actually solve that you can solve. It takes work and it takes collaboration. It takes understanding. And so the reality is like, I can do things, but the reality is like, I want to go beyond satisfaction. And for me to actually help delight you, I need to actually understand your context. I need to understand how things change. And I need to understand your struggling moments because there might be things I can do, but I actually don't know how to articulate it to you. And so that's the thing where, where, where to me, it's, it's all about delight is the right thing, but we have to understand context and we have to have a, uh, an ongoing dialogue about 
their business and your business. On that incredible note, I think we shall stop. Bob, how can people get hold of you? LinkedIn, uh, Bob Mesta, bobmesta.com. And then uh, I have a book on Amazon called Demand Side Sales at Amazon. And Mesta is M-O-E-S-T-A. That's correct. Thank you. (laughs) Tom. They can reach me on uh, on LinkedIn. They can also call me on my cell at 951-515-8159. Connect with me through uh, our website, www.strategicdynamicsfirm.com. And uh, our two books are both available on, on Amazon and in bookstores worldwide. Remind us of their titles. Seller's Challenge and Buyer-Centered Selling. Excellent. Jill. Jill Robbins, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or at www.businessfierce.com. And my children's book is also on Amazon. Ah, good. I love it. (laughs) What's it called? Adventures with Dolly and Jet. Excellent. And my contact details are marcus at laughs-last.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Bob Mester, Tom Williams, Jill Robbins, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation inspiring or challenging, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then drop me a line either on LinkedIn or email and maybe connect us. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.